This text <clears throat> reminds me of uh, a time in seminary. Every year, Westminster has a preaching conference where they invite a preacher, and the conference is about preaching God's word. But I remember this one specifically when I look at this text because I remember after one of the evening sessions, I was so encouraged and so filled that I, that I went up with Gloria, who I was just engaged at, at the time, and I asked the man, can you pray for me? Can you pray for me? You know, when we get a sense of someone's intimacy with God, we want to get in on it. So we ask them to pray for us because we see such great faith in them, a faith that we sometimes in those moments or as a whole have lacked. And so through their prayer, their faithful, intimate relationship with God, when they pray for you, you feel that closeness through them. And during that preaching conference, through his preaching, through his praying, I saw a deep pastoral heart that brought me closer to God through his own intimate relationship with God. You know, in the past couple of weeks, we've looked at Jesus' farewell discourse. He addresses his disciples. He says that he must go, but he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. He says that he is sending the Holy Spirit and to abide in him and bear fruit. He tells them to love one another and that the world will hate them and that in the world they will face tribulation. And as he concludes his discourse with his disciples, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And Jesus says a very bleak truth here, doesn't he, to his followers, that life is going to be rough, that it's going to be hard, that there are going to be trials and tribulation. But he encourages them. He says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. As we look at our text today, verse 1 tells us that upon addressing his disciples, he now turns his eyes up towards heaven. And what does he do? He prays. Not only does he encourage him by the truth of the word, that they will have tribulation, but Jesus has overcome the world, now he prays for them. As we sit under God's word, we're not just digging deeper into it, but we're digging deeper into the heart of it. We're, we're going deeper into the heart of Jesus, who tells us to take heart as he shows us his own through his prayer. Today we have Jesus' high priestly prayer. Our text is not an instruction manual on how to pray, but rather, friends, it's a deep encouragement that our Savior indeed does pray. In fact, he prays for his own. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. Through this prayer, we see a deeply pastoral heart. Through his preaching, recorded in the Gospels, and now in his praying, we see a deeply pastoral heart that brings us closer to the Father through his own intimate relationship as he is the true Son. So the Gospel message today is that Jesus prays for our perseverance and perfect unity with God. Jesus prays for our perseverance 
and perfect unity with God. And we'll look at it in three points. First, prayer. Second, perseverance. And lastly, perfect unity. Point one, Jesus prays. Again, in verse one, Jesus affirms the reason why he came. Again, he turns his eyes to heaven and he prays, Father, the hour has come. The time is here. Jesus is faithfully recognizing the eternal plan for redemption that was made within the unity of the Godhead. Jesus is saying, God, it's time. The primary request that Jesus makes to the Father is that, Father, will you glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you? Jesus is asking that God's will be done, that he would glorify God by being obedient even to the point of death, even death by a cross. Jesus is, being, Jesus is asking to be glorified, ironically here, as the champion for redemption as he gives up his life. And though Jesus' primary request is to glorify God, verses two and three tells us the basis, the grounds of this request. It is so that Jesus can glorify God by giving eternal life to all that have been given to him. Take a look at these verses that we've explored already. John six, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, that he will lose not one person that has been given to him. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus asks to be glorified so that he can give eternal life to those the Father has entrusted to him. That those who were lost would be found, and that they would know the true God by way of Jesus' own mediation as a priest. This is what ultimately glorifies the Father. This is Jesus' desire to glorify God by giving eternal life to all whom have been called in him. That is why in verse 4, Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. Jesus has glorified God by making him known through his public ministry, ultimately climaxing at the cross where we see God's justice for sin and love for sinners. Jesus speaks of this future work of the cross as if it is already done to show that his will is the same as the Father's. So he prays, let this be done. Glorify your son. Lead him to the crucifixion so that he may glorify you and now give eternal life to all whom you have given to me. Let me bring it home a little bit for us. When we look at Ephesians 1, we see here it says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is telling us that this redemptive plan was made in eternity 
in the unity of the Godhead, and now Jesus is about to fulfill it. In fact, it's as good as done because Jesus' will is to do the Father's will. He's saying that all who have been chosen in him will be holy, sanctified to new life. They will be blameless, justified from guilt of sin, and they'll be sons, adopted children of God. So Jesus gives eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to him by making them know the only true God, by showing them himself, God in the flesh. And this ought to be an encouragement for you and I that God, before any of our hideous acts, for any of our good acts, has chosen us in Christ and Christ alone out of his own good pleasure. So the request that Jesus makes is not just that he would be glorified through the work of salvation, but, but that he would be restored to the full glory as God the Son, as he was before he took on flesh, as we see in verse 5. Here we see a grand shot on how Jesus, as the last prophet, speaks God's word, God's word to his disciples and through all the people in his public ministry. We see how he is the high priest now as he brings the people of God before God in this prayer. And we see as Jesus requests to be restored to the full glory, the glory he once had before taking on flesh, that he is the true king that will return. Jesus, with great confidence in the plan of redemption, not only gives his people faith, but praise that they would be kept in the faith. So as we look at the second point, not only does Jesus pray, not only does Jesus give eternal life to those who have been chosen in eternity, here now he prays that we would be preserved, that we would be kept. In verses 6 through 10, Jesus says, that he has manifested God's name to the people. And he has kept them in his word. What does this mean that he has manifested God's name? Well, we see that name can't be taken apart from identity. Name, by revealing God's name, Jesus is saying, I have revealed who God is. I have revealed his identity. I have revealed who he is. I have revealed his name. Let me give you an illustration. You can't have a name without an identity. Now, I'll give you an honest disclaimer. I don't sit at home with my glasses and a cardigan reading Shakespeare, but I'm going to give you a Shakespeare illustration. I only remember this because in ninth grade, my English teacher was one of the best teachers I've ever had. And I remember Romeo and Juliet. And I remember this particular scene very well. As you know in the story that these two families are in feud. It's the feud of all family feuds, the Capulets and the Montague. And the young, beautiful Juliet falls in love with Romeo. And you know that their love is forbidden because their families do not like each other. And so we see these two young people in love with different names, burdened by the identity which that name gives forbidden to love one another. And Juliet, as he, she peers over her balcony, not knowing Romeo is there, says this. 
Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, thou not a Montague. What's Montague? Is it nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man? Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name, and for thy, that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. Juliet is basically saying, get rid of your name. Get rid of who you are. And not knowing that Romeo was there listening, Romeo responds, I take thee at thy word. Call me but love. Whoo! And I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I never will be Romeo. Oh, does Big Willie Shakespeare know how to do that with words? Romeo says, then don't call me by my name. Don't call me Romeo. Call me but love, and I will be new baptized. I will be re-identified. Henceforth, you will never know me as Romeo, but only your love. Wow. And as beautiful and powerful that scene is, and as much as you want their love to prevail, we see that the twist at the end, hopefully I'm not ruining Romeo and Juliet for you. If you don't know the story, that's on you. They, they, they both die. They end up dying. They cannot escape their name. They cannot escape their identity because in their name is their identity. And so when Jesus, let's come back a little bit now. We went a little far. I'm sorry. Let's come back. So when Jesus says, I have manifested your name, he is basically saying, I have manifested your identity. I've manifested the essence of who you are. I myself have manifested that by taking on flesh. And so when the disciples ask Jesus, show us, show us the Father and we'll believe. Jesus says, don't you know, the fact that you see me, you see the Father. Jesus reveals, he manifests the identity, the name of God. And he says he keeps them in the word. Kept them in the word, we know, means that Jesus has spoken God's word over them and sanctified them and cleansed them as he did in the washing of the feet. That it is the word that cleans. It's the word that sanctifies. It's the word of God that renews. This is that very word Jesus says, I have kept them in it. Not only have I manifested who you are, I have kept them in your word. And in doing this, verse 8 tells us that his disciples received, understood, and believed. But let's hold on for one second before this is too encouraging in the wrong way. When, we, when, we're, when we're being told that the disciples received, understood, and believed, we have to remember that this wasn't a perfect receiving, a perfect understanding. It's not a full understanding. It's not a complete belief although it's a true belief. And what I'm trying to say is the disciples' faith was not perfect. They received what Jesus gave. They understood in part, but the Holy Spirit has not come yet. 
And they believed as much as they could as the Spirit leads them to. And so what I'm trying to say is that even though their faith is not perfect, because the perfecter of their faith is praying for them, it is encouraging. And Jesus talks about his disciples as if their faith is being perfected. They, they received it. They understood it. They believed it. As I revealed and manifested your name, as I kept them in your word, they come to know you, the true God. This should be an encouragement to us because oftentimes you and I, we look at people in the Bible like the disciples and we see them as these grand hero figures who never stumble and never fail, had perfect faith, who followed Jesus and never doubted once in their life. But this is not true. If it were, Jesus would not have to pray for them, but he does. He prays for them. We are encouraged here then as we see our own frailty that it is not about how strong our faith is, but rather we are made strong by the one we have faith in. Let me say that again. It's not about how strong our faith is. Rather, we are made strong by the one we have faith in. Because disciples of Jesus will face hardship, Jesus says in verse 9, I am praying for them. I am praying for my followers. I am praying for the ones whom I have given your word, whom I have given eternal life. But I am praying for them because they will face tribulation. And so verse 11 through 19 goes on. As Jesus has said it before, he is on his way back to the Father. Even though it's through a cross, we know that Jesus is now, the hour has come for him to finish the work of redemption and be exalted back to where he was. He is on his way back to the Father. He is about to leave, at least in the physical sense, his Disciples. The disciples, then we're told that they are no longer of the world, but in the world. They're no longer a product of the world, but they simply are called to live in the world as a renewed person of God. This is why Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name so they may be one even as we are one. He says, I have kept them in your name. I have guarded them, but as I leave them to come to you, Father, my prayer is that you would keep them, that you would guard them in your name so that they may have joy fulfilled in them. Again, what is Jesus saying by requesting of the Father that he keeps his disciples in his name? What Jesus is saying is, Father, as I come to you and physically leave my disciples, will you keep them and guard them in who you are, in your identity, in your name? Let me flesh it out a little bit more. To keep and to guard in God's name is to be kept in his identity, meaning that the disciples who have been identified with God would not lose their identity in God. Those who have associated themselves with Jesus and not the world would remain now in that name that was given, that was manifested to them. 
Jesus acknowledges that the world is hard, that there will be tribulation. That's precisely why he prays that the Father keep his disciples in his name. That's why he prays that the Father guards the disciples in his name, in his identity. So people in Christ would never forget who they are. So that sons who were called to adoption before the foundations of the earth would realize no matter how hard the tribulations are, they are still sons of God. So that they would be holy, sanctified to new life, and, 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 and grown to perfection. That they would be blameless and justified from their sin. Jesus is saying, God, life is going to be hard for them. Help them to remember who they are. Practically, this means that we do not lose our identity as we live in this world. A world that hates us, a world that is decaying, a world that has fallen, a world that is ruled by Satan, that we do not forget who we are. It reminds me of the scene in Lion King where Simba looks up to the sky and his father Mufasa says, Simba, remember who you are. <laughs> Jesus is saying, Father, will you keep them? Would you guard them in your name so they remember who they are? even as tribulation comes. Now let me, really, let me really bring that in. Why does he pray that? Because think about it. When tribulation comes, how easy is it for us to forget who we are? As soon as tribulation comes, we forget that we have a Father who protects us, who guards us, who keeps us, who watches over us, who provides for us. Imagine this, a child, maybe your child, when, he goes play, when, when they go outside to play and they scrape their knee and they come back, wouldn't it be a little strange with a scraped knee they come back to you and say, Mom, Dad, do you love me? Am I still your child? Like, what are you talking about? You, just, you got a scraped knee. It's rough out there. Why would a scraped knee confuse you in who you are? But we do that so much. We get our knee scraped. Some of the scratches are bigger and smaller, but we get afflicted as we rub up against this world. And it's so strange if you really think about it. Why should that make us question who we are in God? Why should a scraped knee say, God, do you still love me? Am I still your child? God says, of course you are, but you're living in a sin-fallen world but I will make sure you are kept in my name. I will make sure you are guarded so that you never forget who you are, no matter what happens. You know, we talked last week about the hatred of the world, and as American Christians with freedom of religion, we don't really feel the, the hatred of the world. However, we feel the world in a more subtle way. We, we still feel the tribulations of the world. We feel it in our flesh as we decay, as we see loved ones who are sick, as we ourselves face sickness. We feel it in our spirit as we get tempted and attacked. All the while, its touch is seductive. And out of hate, the world actually tries to make us fall in love with it. The world tries to seduce us, not because it loves us, but because it hates us. It hates us because we are one with Jesus, the one who will bring an end to this dying world. Think about how seductive some of the world's lure is. Think about how we are always tempted to 
assume a new identity. But we're reminded, we're reminded of our identity as a child of God through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, Father, will you keep them in their name so they do not forget? So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters and friends, I know many of you guys are struggling through afflictions. And you know, I couldn't stop tearing up as we were singing, Christ is enough. Because I know some of you guys were really singing that as a prayer. I couldn't, I couldn't stop tearing up while we were singing, um, remember your people. Because he does remember us. That's precisely why Jesus prays to the Father that we are remembered and we are kept. And so I don't want to just diminish sufferings that we are facing, but I do want to cover over it all with the truth of Christ that says, no matter what you're going through, no matter what the tribulation is, Christ has prayed that those who follow him will be kept and be kept in God's name. And verse 15 and 19 continue. We are called not to escape the world, but to be in it as ones who continue to carry the gospel forward into the generations to come. This is why in verse 18 it says that Jesus sends us now into the world just as the Father has sent him. And verse 19 tells us that Jesus consecrates himself. Better yet, he dedicates, devotes himself to this cause that the gospel would advance. That the disciples would be sanctified in truth and make more disciples. This is what Christ dedicates, sanctifies himself to. That the gospel would be taken forward. That this message of hope in front of tribulation, that this message of true identity and stability in a moving world will be taken forward so that all who have been chosen in him in the foundation of the world will hear the call and come and rest in that truth. Jesus not only gives eternal life, he prays that the disciples will be kept in that life, but also that this life be extended into the generations to all who have been called by God. The third point, Jesus prays for perfect unity. Now up to this point, for the sake of application, I've worked ourselves into it, but it isn't until now where Jesus now prays for all future disciples, which include you and I. Verse 20 to 23, Jesus says, he doesn't just ask this on behalf of his disciples only, but also for those who will believe through their word that we would all be one that the whole people of God, that all who follow Jesus will be one, not only with one another, but with the triune God, that all who are called in Jesus Christ to God will have unity with one another, and they will have fellowship and unity with the triune God. That as verse 23 states, all God's people would be perfectly one, perfectly one, Again, reminded here of the new commandment that Jesus gives. And this is how the world will know that God sent Jesus, his one and only son. This is how the world will know if we love one another. As we look at verses 24 to 26, in these last verses, Jesus reiterates 
that God keeps his disciples from all ages so that ultimately we would see Christ in his full glory as he returns as true king. What is the implications here? What we're saying is this, this prayer that Jesus gives ages ago, we are now part of that answered prayer. You and I who are in the faith are part of that answered prayer, that the Father honored this prayer and we are proof of it. That across all generations, across all ethnicities, across all cultural barriers, across all socioeconomic divides, across all political views, across anything of this world, the gospel has went forth just as Jesus prayed from him to the disciples, from generation to generation, even reaching most of us Korean Americans here in 2018 at Horsham. That ought to make us pause for a second and say, wow, we are living proof. We are part of that answered prayer that Jesus has given. Even as Mark shared during the time of announcements, I assume many of you guys who are maybe a little bit older have been in the faith or in youth group have experienced it. Excuse me. You know, over time, you, you felt as though you've fallen away, but you see God's faithfulness in your life. That's a testimony of how he has kept you. Some of you guys who are even in college or young adults, as you look back and you remember some of your circumstances and your hardships, the things that you prayed through, moments where you almost even wanted to give up believing in God, and you see now that he has been faithful, that he has kept you. That's Jesus' prayer. That not only would his disciples there be kept, but you and I through all the ages, all who have been called in Jesus, be preserved, be brought into perfect unity with the Father. And as the great high priest who praised this, Remember the sermon a couple weeks ago that he has now blasted, I love that translation, into the heavens. And we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who intercedes for us. This prayer, this interceding in some ways is still going on. And so as we actively struggle and face tribulations here and now and still, be encouraged Brothers and sisters, be encouraged that Jesus continues to intercede for us, that we will be kept in his name. So the gospel message today is that Jesus prays for our perseverance and perfect unity with God. Let's pray.